chill out, get uh, like get laid and, and have have a joint or something like that or something. It definitely was get laid, chill out and get laid. I was like, well, you know, that's going to be the it, title of the podcast it, for sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, here today with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of Christ Anglican Church in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. How are you guys doing? Excellent. Great, Nick. Got some um, external noise on our microphones. We're in various living rooms and dining rooms. And so uh, if you hear children, that's that's just our children. There you, there you go. Um, Matt, I see on Instagram, you have a new dog. How's the incorporation and socialization going? Yeah, it's a, it's like twice the size of any other dog we've had for a long time. So, And it's a, it's a mix between a Rhodesian uh, Ridgeback and a Boxer. So it's extremely, I think the Rhodesian Ridgeback was, was bred to fight lions and stuff. So <laughs> yeah, I think this, they were actually. <laughs> this thing is like really strong. And you have cats. Um, and we have cats, but <laughs> it's afraid of cats. Okay. So it's perfect. I mean, it's, it, it's, it, how do you, how are you a dog bred to fight lions and you're afraid, and you're afraid of cats? You just want to near them, but fear of them is in inverse proportion to their size. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so it's good. All right. Well, well listen, this is the uh, second week of our little impromptu three-week series on identity, sexuality, and justice with Matt and JD helping me craft a class that I'll be presenting to my own parish here in a few months. It's our hope, of course, that these discussions will be helpful to other pastors as they talk to their churches about these issues and to lay people as they deal with them in their own lives. So this week, we're going to talk about sex and sexuality again. This is the issue that we're often accused of overemphasizing, but it's also the issue that several notable ex-evangelicals, those who have loudly left the fold of evangelical Christianity, folks like Josh Harris, Jen Hatmaker, Rachel Held Evans, Abraham Piper, and a host of others, this is the issue that they have almost universally identified as the reason they left, the evangelical Christian teaching on sex and sexuality. I think that justice our topic for next week is poised to be the next big reason people leave the evangelical church, but for now, it's still sex. So guys, why don't we start here? What is it that these ex-evangelicals misunderstand or refuse to accept about the church's teaching on sex and sexuality? I mean, we've, we've, we've talked about this before a lot of times, but, but I think two, two things you just stand out immediately to me. And, and that is a, a misunderstanding of, of the nature of Christian love for one, um, and a misunderstanding of the nature of revelation versus the self. Right. So, so love under, and um, in our present era is all about on the one hand, eros, you know, the, 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 the P two people loving one another in a romantic way, uh, is love. And so that's just kind of simply uh, transposed into the into the New Testament. <laughs> and so anytime you anytime the the modern person reads love, there's always this kind of emotional content to it. And so and so, you know, if, if two people are in love, man and man, woman and woman, well, God is love, and so we're in love. This is all about God. How can you stand in the way of us? And when you, you know, you say, well, actually, what love is, is according to the New Testament, the is the of what is giving the good, doing what is best, giving what is good to 
to the other. Truly good is defined by scripture, not by, um, not by emotion. So, so if my friend comes out as gay, culturally love is wonderful. This is so great. I'm so happy for you. You found your true self and you're, you're expressing yourself. Whereas in love in the New Testament would say, you say your friend, well, you've now taken a step outside the church. You're headed toward destruction because Paul says that those who do such things without repentance cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So please repent because Jesus died for your sin. And that in the world is heard as very hatred, hateful because we have these two kind of warring ideas of what of what love is. But then secondly, there's this, there's a, this, the, the misunderstanding about revelation and the self. So, uh, and we in another subject we've, we've spoken about many times, and that is that uh, for mo- the modern person, Carl Truman writes about this. The the quest is to find the self, and whatever you, when when you look within and you find sexual desires of one kind or another, that defines you. And then you take what you find there, and you you place yourself on the grid of gender, the, the gender grid that goes from the Q it's on the, the one hand, unicorn mat, it's yeah, yeah, the yeah, yeah, right, <laughs> whatever it is, or the genderbred person. <laughs> yeah, and that's who you are, right? And so and so, uh, whereas again. Uh, the way the classic way of understanding the self is that we we take scripture as the objective given. Scripture defines our identity as male or female, and where we find any desires within that are uh, that are drawing us away from what scripture reveals. Well, that's that's, right. that, that's what needs to be confessed, and, and and we ask God to forgive us for those things. Yes. Um, and so those two things together, misunderstanding of love and misunderstanding of self and revelation, you got a perfect storm. You got a perfect storm uh, between Christianity and the culture. And then the smugness, the smugness from the Prius drivers from uh, California. That was a <laughs> South Park reference about the perfect <laughs> smug storm. You remember? They had yeah. uh, Al Gore's speech. They had uh, George Prius drivers. George Clooney's <laughs> No, you're exactly right, Matt. I mean, I think that's, that's, um, that is the perfect storm that we find ourselves in today. And, you know, with respect in particular to sexuality, I think the most radical thing that the church has to say, particularly as we look back at last week about identity and then this week at sexuality is that sex is not actually as big a deal as you think it is. I mean, that's, that's what's so funny about this conversation is that the church is often, uh, is often um, lampooned for being um, sort of obsessed with the discussion of sex. And we may talk about it a lot, but we're actually talking about it ad nauseum in order to ratchet down the importance from where it is otherwise going to be in a fallen world, because we don't believe that it's it's a way to commune with the divine. We don't think that it defines who you are, like your desires are actually constitutive of your personhood before God. We don't think that if you can't have it, you're somehow less than human. And we certainly don't think that the prohibition against it is is a mark of cruelty from a from a faceless deity or something. Like we we actually say that it is a gift. Um, it is a desire that that in in the service of God's um, designed plans for its use, it is life-giving, enjoyable, and good. But like all desires in their fallen state can be very quickly turned into uh, vehicles for your own self-destruction and slash uh, self-aggrandizement, which is the same thing according to the Bible. And so, you know, which is it? Because if we're being accused of talking about sex too much, well, we're not the people who are arguing that who I want to have sex with is actually defining me as a human being. I mean, can you imagine something more 
more profound or more important in your life than that which defines you as a as a human person. And so um, if you're going to talk about sex that way, uh, well, then there's no possible way to talk about something more important than that. And so if we talk about it simultaneously, what you're actually upset with is that we're questioning what you think to be the most important thing about you. You're actually mad at us for, for having the, the audacity to blaspheme your God, your idol of yourself. That's what we're saying, because we're saying, you know, no, Mr. 18 year old, um, your life uh, will not be an abject, um, meaningless, worthless existence if you were unable to ever be have a blessed sexual relationship in your life. If you're unable to find a wife, or somehow you got into a tractor accident and were in, unable to, um, you know, uh, sort of physically have sex anymore, or whatever sort of accident you want, um, uh, bull riding. And, um, and yet that is what the world tells people because the God, goddess of Aphrodite, the, the Canaanite, um, you know, the Hyrus Gamos, the, 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 the Canaanite fertility goddesses uh, require, demand, and are fed by the human sexual appetite. And so we say, you know, just like with the moon and the stars and the sun, what you think are gods, we actually have been given as, in, that, in those cases, ways to tell the day from the night, um, you know, sort of navigational tools, just so with sex like it is a wonderful gift that is meaningful uh creational and and good and yet is not a fundamental constitutive part of what it means to be a human um in and of itself and so when we say that then we provoke and we stir up wrath as it were and that is where the conversation generally ends up is you know why are you talking about sex so much is really just why are you deigning to say that what I consider to be the most important um, thing in life, or at least the most aspirational thing of my young um, adolescence um, is, is actually not as important as I think it is. And so, you know, it's, again, it's, it's not surprising to me that this is the, the, the break point that all of these ex-evangelicals talk about when they kind of come through their awakening um, and realize that their bodies, um, which they thought all along are actually their own, um, that they can do with what they want to with them. And I think it's actually the final line in that New York Times article with, um, uh, what's his name, Piper. He said, you know, Abraham, chill out, chill out, get, uh, like get laid and and have have a joint or something like that or something it definitely was get laid chill out and get laid i was like well you know that's going to be the title of the podcast for sure (laughs) it's like well you know i mean uh i'm not surprised that that was that would be a great impediment to you to actually have a god who had authority and um designs and purposes and ideas about your life that you didn't share uh which is of course the why the first commandment is such a chafe um on the world until it is brought um until it is made true uh, by the power of the gospel i want to read you guys a quote in light of all of that you just said jd both about the idea that sex is a gift and important but not the ultimate most important thing this is from uh christopher west's um helpful explication of John Paul II's theology of the body. Um, He wants to say that there are two overarching truths about the importance of an embodied creation. First is that God himself is a communion of love. That is the Trinity exchanges love within itself. And second, he says that we as Christians are destined ultimately to share in that exchange. And then here's the quote that I'd like to get your reaction to. Here's what West writes. God imprinted in our sexuality the call to participate in a created version of his eternal exchange of love. In other words, 
God created us male and female so that we could image his love by becoming a sincere gift to each other. The sincere giving establishes a communion of persons, not only between the sexes, but also in the normal course of events with a third who proceeds from them both, that is a child. In this way, sexual love becomes an icon or earthly image in some sense of the inner life of the Trinity. So that seems to at least allude to things of ultimate importance. How do you react to that quote? Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely is utterly opposed to why what people think they're doing when they're having sex right now. Yeah. <laughs> no one, well, not no one, but very people think they're doing anything other than pleasing myself. I'm, I'm having these relationships with you because uh, I have really strong feelings for you and it feels good. Or maybe it just feels you still, or maybe it just feels good. The strong feelings are I right can, now. Somebody right. swiped right, and I <laughs> yeah, guess right. <laughs> right. Uh, whereas for the Christian, it it's about the glory of God. I mean, ultimately, not not, not that the, the attraction isn't there. Of course, it is, and the and the love isn't there between the husband and the wife. But but ultimately, it's it, it's it's about God. it's about the gospel. It's about God. Uh, it's about God's glory. Um, and so, and so that's why I got in trouble on Twitter a couple of weeks ago. No way. So, yeah, I did. I know it was uh, <laughs> same time, same thing I'm thinking about. I, I mentioned that this, this one author was blaspheming marriage and, and someone came on and said, you can't blaspheme marriage. Marriage isn't a God. You've, you've made, you've made marriage into an idol. Um, and, and no, I, it wasn't that marriage is the God. It was that marriage is the icon of the God and my, uh, the icon of God's relationship with, with his people. And so, and so you can, you can desecrate that. You can, uh, you can so sully that, that you, you impugn the image of God and, or the, the, the icon of God in that, um, in, the, in that picture. Ultimately then any kind of assault against, against what, God has given sex to us for, and that's as it's revealed in scripture is an assault on God. And that's why Christians care a lot about it. It's yeah. <laughs> when we hear people who, who don't believe in Jesus talking about sex in, in kind of flippant ways or are having sex in, in ways that are not consistent with scripture. Of course, you know, they're not believers. They don't get it. We hope they do. That's just the, that that speaks to their need for salvation. But when we hear people who purport to be Christians say mm. things like, "Hey, uh, it's great for two men to be together, two women to be together, or, or the church shouldn't be treated this as a big deal." That's when it just becomes so outrageous. Don't you know what you're talking about? Don't you know this is about Christ His church? Don't you know this is about the gospel? Don't you know that this is about the glory of God? How how dare you say that? Mm. Yeah, and I think I should qualify. I mean, because I, I agree with you. And so as I was thinking about previous comments, I mean, I don't want to say that it's not an important um, concept to the Christian, like you're saying. I think that, that you know, you may want to, or one could make a distinction between, you know, the actual act of having sex and the concept of sexuality as it was given to us by God. Um, because I totally agree with you that, that male, female, I mean, the image of God on earth is men and women. And so their relationship, not simply sexual, although in a sexualized way, being men and women, is going to have some ramifications for what we understand about ourselves and God. I mean, that's by design. You know, that's what Paul talks about in the middle of Ephesians 5, when he begins to talk about Christ and the church as, as an image or analogy of, of um, a husband and wife. And, um, and so I think that, you know, again, 
I think the perfect example of this is the fact that John Paul II, who was a Roman Catholic, you know, the Pope, who was committed the to a life Roman of, Catholic. <laughs> yeah, he was committed to a life of celibacy, who ostensibly, you know, I don't know his entire biography, but at least for most of his adult life was celibate and not engaged in, you know, um, uh, sort of sexual activity, nevertheless could could philosophize and theologize and wax so eloquently on on the meaning of sex uh, within a Christian worldview. And I think that's that's what points to what I was talking about before is that is that the, uh, the, the significance of it is incredibly important. And the image of God is male and female and the way that we're related and the procreative reality as, he, as Christopher West points out of actually being the vehicle through which God brings souls into the world. I mean, it's, there's could be nothing more important than that. And yet the, um, the sort of sinful uh, degradation of it into simply a um, exalted bodily appetite that needs to be, right. as it were, deified. That's what we are. That's what we're blaspheming because mm -hmm. we're saying, because that's the audacity, you know, the people who come and say, how could that John Paul II even know anything about sex? It's like, well, he knew something about what it meant to be a man um, and created as part of the image of God, which is found in the relationship between men and women. So even in, um, even in celibacy, one has that understanding of human sexuality that is God-given, which is um, prescribed and, and delineated among very clear lines um, which which the world does not uh, believe and therefore re rejects, and so so I think that's you know that's that's sort of how I would I would not respond to what you're saying, Matt, but but further that in light of what I said before, because when we blaspheme the God of sex, what we're saying is that it actually is more than than about you that is actually part of a of a um of an iconographic whole or, or a represent representative whole of god's um well of god's relational being in himself which is then mapped onto the image his image on earth which is men and women in their their sexual i.e male female um relations their gendered relations this is why it makes all the sense in the world that satan would attack humans on this field because the union of man and women is intended to be an image of this divine interrelationship. And so it makes all the sense in the world that he would attack this. He knows that the body and sex are meant to proclaim the d divine mystery and that proclamation must be stifled. And so of course, you know, we must from his perspective, be uh, kept from recognizing the mystery of God in our bodies. And so right. we, we like the woman caught in adultery, right? We're, we're, we're being deceived by a lie from the father of lies. She's looking for fulfillment outside of the Lord's ordained plan for sex, but couldn't find it. And then Jesus tells her, go and sin no more. She doesn't hear that as some sort of authoritarian law. Like, who is this man who tells me what I can and cannot do with my body? Right? She has now encountered the love that she was looking for with these men. She's actually encountered that in Jesus and would have been transformed and renewed and affirmed in what it really means to be a woman and in love. Yes. Well, and it's also part of the curse, you know, that there would be pain multiplied in childbirth, which isn't just just the physical pain, but it's the reality of rejected responsibilities, both from a female and a male um, point of view, because, you know, there's great resentment, resentment. I mean, we see this is essentially the the beating heart of the modern kind of um, anti-male feminist movement um, is the is the overthrow of the um, of the being subjugated to being the one who has to have the babies. I mean, this 
was literally the the argument made for Roe versus Wade was that it was unfair that men in sexual Congress weren't saddled with the possibility of having children. Therefore, it needed to be fair enough so that both people could have sex without the fear, the quote unquote fear of having a child. And that is you know, the fact that that was made with a straight face and with great earnestness is is a is a uh, a picture of the fallen state of the world, because that which was a gift of the union of the image of God, a procreative gift that 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 um, that came out of the relationship between men and women is now seen as the actual curse um, that needs to be uh, done away with. I mean, that's that's the ju- that's the flipping of the script. You know, like C.S. Lewis saw this very easily, uh, well in his Screw Tape Letters when he talked about the difference between us speaking of the devil and our enemy above. Is that he, the ridiculous creature, that he, uh, ridiculous thing that he is, actually loves these things, whereas what we are interested in is simply devouring them. And so we look at the the way that that fallen. The, the good things of God in a fallen world become the vehicles for our own self-destruction. And sex is probably one of the most powerful desires out there, among the most powerful that, that, that contribute to the rapid destruction of our bodies. That's why Paul talks about sexual sins being of a different nature than other sins, because it's not simply a, a sin against yourself, but it's a sin with someone else. You know, you're defiling not only the temple of God in your own self, but you're also, um, you know, roping others in, in your, your de- the degradation of your bodies. And of course, it goes back to the entire radical argument of the Jews, which was a stumbling block to the Greeks and laughable to the rest of the pagans, which was that your body actually mattered. You know, this was the, this is why the incarnation was such a, uh, upon retrospect by the, the early disciples, the apostles, uh, something so beautiful, you know, Paul writes about he who had a quality of God, you know, didn't, didn't count it as such and, and divested kenosis, you know, divested his power and became one of us. And, and they wax on and on about how, how amazing it was that God took on flesh. Well, that was the final fruit, as it were, the first fruit and final, final, final fruit and final seed and first fruit, how about that, of these, this Jewish insistence that God was uh, the creator and the creation was good and that our bodies, our world, and our, our embodied, our, our enfleshed lives were, were not insulary to our, to our humanity, you know, and this is why um, sex becomes such a, an important uh, part of the Christian act of worship, even, even the, the refusal of it, you know, even right. the, the denial even of it. Yeah. That's right. That becomes an incredible part of, of radical self-denial, um, which is all part of the life of the confession that, that we know who God is, we know that he's good, and that he has said his word is trustworthy and true, and that what he has said is, is better than whatever I may feel at any given time, which of course is, is, a, is a fight of a lifetime, but um, it's a worthy one because, because that's, what we, that's what we hold on to, and it holds us fast. Your point about the, about the incarnation, and also I guess it would certainly play out with the resurrection as well, is, is this kind of God-givenness of the body that it's an objective reality that, that God has made and God is redeeming. Uh, that in itself is such a threat to our under, the, the cultural understanding of the self, right? Because um, if the cultural understanding of the self is look within, find the truth, and then everything outside of you changes because of that, even your body, if necessary, you take your hormone blockers or you uh, you go get some surgery to change your body so that it looks like what you think it should by delving within. That is undone if Christianity is true, because right. because God became man in a, in a body, and in that very same body, uh, rose from the dead. The, 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 when the angel said, 
uh, you're looking for Christ crucified, see where they lay him. He's not there. He's risen. That means the very same body with which he died, he rose, he rose, he rose with. And it's if that's right the there in the plan, creed, I yeah. believe in the resurrection <laughs> of the body and the life everlasting. Exactly. So, so, so there cannot be a Christian trans Christian. There's no, there, there can't be any kind of uh, association or friendship between the Christian, the Christian worldview and, and trans philosophy and the whole kingdom of self that come, that it flows out of. Uh, because of this embodied given self, the, the, the body that God gives as a, as a, as a reality for each one of us um, at the moment of our conception. Well, yeah. And I think that's a really good point. And I was talking to someone about this just the other day, because they were asking me, we were talking about uh, the, the Bishop's pastoral statement, which we've spoken about on this before about how to talk, how Christians should talk about um, their sexual desires. And to your point about the, the sort of trans conversation, no one should hear us saying that we are unaware of unsympathetic to, or somehow uh, dismissive of people who have genuine um, fallen realities about their lives around these issues. Like that's not what we're saying at all. We're not, we're not unaware of the fact that there are people who are very confused in their, their quote unquote gender identity. There are very people who wrestle with all sorts of sexual temptations that they recognize are not scriptural or biblical. The question is how do we, how do we walk with them in that struggle? And what we're talking about from Nick, when you're talking about this class from very early on with respect to sexuality is that we reject out of hand because God has revealed it, that there is something to the idea of a sexual identity or that there is something to a disconnect between a biological reality and your gendered, your embodied uh, gender reality. That's now, if you feel that way, you act against it, you have fallen in these ways, then, you know, like St. Chrysostom's Great Easter Sermon, like let no one who has, has left the feast dismay because forgiveness has risen from the grave, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's no, there's no end to that mercy, but the walking, I think that's why I picked up on your point because I was discussing this with someone. I'm not gonna take one step with someone in a uh, sort of conceptual or narrative world that acknowledges um, some legitimacy to a um, to an unbiblical concept of identity, particularly around sexuality. Now, that doesn't mean that I won't walk with them, perhaps the rest of their lives, um, in this fight, in this wrestling, in this in this um, in this broken reality, uh, where God's mercies are new at every every point. And yet, we are we are constrained not out of out of anger, out of judgment, but out of love to speak true things from God to a world that is under deception. And so particularly when it comes to sexuality, then there is a great lie from the great deceiver about its importance to self-fulfillment, its malleability, its direction, its, uh, you know, just go down the list of things that it has been, the world has been lied to about the, about sex. And we have been given um, guidance and loving correction and ultimately hope to help reorder this disordered world. And so that's what we're in the business of doing because so it's often implied in conversations with me um, from some people, well-intended as they may be, that perhaps I'm just not as in touch with, with actual broken people in these areas as I should yeah. be. And I reject that out of hand, uh, particularly in these areas, because everyone who's a Christian um, is, is painfully aware. Like Paul in Romans 
Romans 7, of the, of the wages of their own sin in their own lives. And if you have anyone that you genuinely love other than yourself, like a spouse or a child, then you're even more painfully aware of how your sin affects the goodness and, and the productivity of your life and your love for others. And so, so when we talk about these things, we're not speaking, we're speaking as pastors, speaking as pastors who've given our lives to help people find hope and redemption in the midst of these broken realities. But part of that work, as we often say, like a surgeon is to bring a scalpel um, to, to like bring the law. It has to cut and has to reveal in order for the, in order for the healing to begin. Yeah. I mean, this is why we, this is why we, while we commend those who are remaining celibate, we still we, we can't support Revoice or the gay Anglican movement or the, or the spiritual friendship because, because all, all of those, those people within those movements have embraced this understanding of the self that is inherently unbiblical. It's a, the understanding of the self that, that is defined by desire, by what I want, by who I want to be with. And that's, that is, that's once you've embraced that secular definition of of identity well you've already given away half the game you've already you've already given away so much that and i, and I pray they do i pray they hold firm to their commitments but, but it would be logical not to <laughs> if you've already if you've already taken the secular view of the self and made it your own um it's it's a very easy step to Started acting out sexually in accordance with that. And well, this is why you've indulged started. in the identity soon enough. Yeah. You'll indulge. And that's in why the it's so. Thing. That's why. Well, again, even if even if people remain celibate, which we hope they do, I mean, that's it's a secondary issue to the lie of sort of of again sexual identity outside of God's design. Because what that does is then it 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 constrains you to a life of essentially, um, you, you know, you're, you, you have, you know, who told you you were a gay Christian? Who told you you were bisexual? Who told you yeah. you were trans? Like not the Bible didn't, you know, God hasn't, the church never has up until, well, it still doesn't for the you know vast majority of, of uh, Christians around the world. And there's a reason for that because, you know, we are totally aware of, I mean, you could go back thousands of years of written history, including the Bible, but not limited to about the, um, we should say the, the, the various appetites of the human creature for sexual fulfillment, you know, most notably men. I mean, there's, we've talked about this at length. And so we're not unaware of this. We're not unaware of these problems. And yet the, the modern conception of the self, it just happens to be, you know, sex is one of the major powers, but you could, you could see how it really, um, this con concept of identity, like we talked about last week, can extend to any manner of things. It just happens to be um, that our desires, our sexual desires, are so so pronounced and so um, so powerful that it becomes a readily available tool for us to, to use to define ourselves. And I think that's where, you know, when you're teaching children, you know, when you're raising them in this this plausibility structure, as Charles Taylor would say, I mean, we begin early and persistent and consistently talking about what sex is, who God is, who we are, where our fallenness would be, and and how to to process our fallen desires when we meet them because you will and you know the means of of confession and absolution and and the way of a christian i mean matt you've got you know six kids i mean you've been raising them um in this world and um you know i mean i'd be interested to know how you how you sort of you know when nick's writing this curriculum for for children i mean how do you uh how, do you have any words of wisdom for us 
<laughs> uh, pass it off to your wife. No, I'm just, kidding. <laughs> just kidding. That's uh, right. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, I, I, I come from a family that's particularly embarrassed to talk about anything you know, below the waist. And, uh, and so my father, I think we waited until I was like 18 to say, <laughs> to 18. <tell> me. <laughs> no, right. I'm kidding. Uh, so, but no, I've had to be very intentional about not, not waiting that long with my children. And we do, we, we start very early talking about the body with why did God make you this way, Aiden and you this way, Emma, um, what's the difference? Why are you different that way? And it was, it was actually pretty, it was, it was actually is not, you know, you go you go into the details at different ages. Not don't go into every detail at young ages, but but you can talk about um, very early the gospel and its relationship to the body, and and that's that just sets your kids off at a very young age with a completely different conception of who they are than they would get if they were only getting messages from public school or from right. or from their friends, and and so I I. You know, who knows what could happen in the future with my children? I, I, I would never want to say that none of them, they're, they're going to be, you know, who knows what could happen to them. Well, at least five of them are sinners. So we know yeah, that. So yeah, yeah, the yeah. The odds are is that five out, <laughs> of, five that out of every six, conception. <laughs> five out of every six people are definitely sinners. So. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, at the very least, I think at least they'll have that, they'll have that ground, that, that foundation there in their minds um, that they can go back to if they ever fall far away from that well again and it's like we it's just i mean it's as if we don't have sort of precedent for this uh written instruction as it were like deuteronomy 5 we don't have thousands of years of inspired um fallible people infallible inspire uh you know direction about how to raise your children like in the fear and admonition of the lord like how does this look and it yes it's your sexual appetites but it's also your every other appetite you know how does what is food with respect to your body Body. What is what is your um, avocations? What is your free time? You know, what is your 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 gifting? And how does all of this play in the economy of a world given back to you? As we talk about, you know, that Jesus has given us back the world where we no longer have to be afraid of this faceless God. We can come out behind the tree, no longer guilty, fearful, or shameful, and actually explore the garden of our yes it's a broken world but nevertheless it's one in which we believe god is present and in doing his his work of redemption through us and so we we even look at our bodies you know it changes our relationship to to every single aspect of our lives and it happens to be acute in our current cultural situation which perhaps it wasn't in our great-grandfathers they had some other fight where this sexual desire has been detached from god's design and purpose and elevated to a um sort of coterminous um deity really uh which is which is given full reign to define an entirely different world and so we're at conflict with this world just as as the church and the the judeo-christian people have always been and so when there's there's turbulence and there's um consternation and there are disagreements well then we need to be as first peter says as gentle and graceful in our response to them as possible and nevertheless we need to be ready and this is I commend you, Nick, and of course, all of us. Remember, somebody said a tweet a couple of weeks ago, and I forget who or what context, but they're like, I hope all these people that are that are getting all fired up about um, about uh, the way that people are talking about their sexual desires. I hope they're all getting ready to teach in depth and extensively about God's design for human sexuality in every area of their lives. And I said, well, I hope they are too. I mean, I certainly do, because if you aren't, if, if the 
the modern iteration of what passes for uh, polite cultural conversation and expression hasn't uh, shocked even the most uh, sort of head in the sand Christian into a um, a sense of probably urgency about needing to equip and and disciple their the people around them. Well, then I don't know what else will um, because because we are certainly um, in a different place than perhaps uh, you know again my great grandfather would thought we would be in a public conversation about sex, but perhaps all that's done is reveal the actual state of where many people's hearts are and given us an opportunity to enter into what is quite nihilistic and quite despairing sexual world of Twitter and, and only fans, this, this thing, which is basically like private porno on Twitter or something. Like, I don't even know. I mean, I know people are making like millions of dollars and it comes up on my feed all the time about how such and such Christian person is making, you know, $60,000 a day as an only fans model or something. Yeah. And I, and I die a little bit inside, <laughs> but, but, you know, it's like, well, you know, there's an alternative. Let me come in. Let me show you a more beautiful way, says Paul, you know, um, about about the God of love who gave himself for sinners and and redeemed him, redeemed you by his own blood and gives you a greater hope than perhaps making even fifty thousand dollars on OnlyFans. Um, you know, uh, as hard as that is to believe, dear. And um, we'll keep saying that. And I think we'll keep we'll keep teaching that to people and finding some resistance but um, hopefully, and it's been my experience, that some of the hottest resistance I've, I've received on some of these issues has been at people at the final stages of their, of their grip being loosened on their, on their idol. You know, the, the, the people who actually aren't so disillusioned with sex that they still believe it means something and they just don't like what I'm saying about it and they're fighting with me, fighting with me. And then it turns out, you know, I hear five years later that they're married with like, that they've left that lifestyle entirely, you know, and it's, and it's those type situations and those types of um, stories that that uh, resonate and keep keep uh, me going in the midst of you know which is a conversation at odds with the prevailing culture is never one that is easy to have, but we pray that we can continue to stand fast and and have the courage to to and the and the and the actual love to to continue to preach something of God's law uh, in service of His gospel. I'm glad you brought up the the pornography issue because you know one of the one of the constant accusations being thrown at those of us who hold the orthodox position on sexuality is that you know all it's all about homosexuality because we're homophobic and i mean i've, I've heard people say they grew up in evan evangelical churches and didn't hear a word about anything any kind of sexual sexual sin except for homosexuality and i just that's hard at the same I, I yeah have you heard that before i've heard that from so many people and yet at the same time, the very same people will turn around and you know, decry purity culture because of the horror, the horrible, horrible experiences of purity culture growing up because of the, you know, the purity culture was all about teaching sexual purity for heterosexuals. So I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, we, you know, it's easy. It's a, it's a different kind of perversion, but, but heterosexual promiscuity or licentiousness is, is just as I mean, not just as, but is as is as is is destructive to the human person um, as anything else. And and since our, our our media landscape has changed so dramatically in the last ten years, it's just everywhere. I mean, you can you don't have to you don't have to look. It comes looking for you. Well, and I think, but again, we've talked about this before too. But the problem with this is that that, that there's a there's a marshalling of of vested interests in this entire discussion around sexuality. In that, if we can get we can get those Christian people to stop talking about any of it, yeah. you know, um, then then we can continue to do all of it, 
I mean, that's yeah. really the that's really the 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 mentality behind it. And so, you know, that's why there's such um, you know relatively small percentages of people who identify in some of these we should say non-traditional sexual identities, as it might be insane, or, or nevertheless are championed by an overwhelming majority of a unbelieving world. Uh, because if you can get them to to be okay well then we're okay too you know if it's okay um you know if in and so you know you look at the again i, I we don't want to speak sound I, i'm sensitive to this because i've been recently accused of it's like sounding like a haranguing legalist <laughs> or something you know and i and i i am sensitive to that because i i have um you know it's impossible to have grown up or to be a, a human being in this culture and not be marked by its its sensuality and its its sort of um uh sort of the the, the kind of the depravity for lack of a better word of it you know that's even prevalent in you know just PG movies or whatever kind of you would just find on the TV. And so, so, you know, to say that we are, any of us are people of unclean hand of, of clean hands and clean lips um, is a lie. You know, we are with Isaiah that we are those confessing and yet we, we still confess. I mean, we still are people who, you know, talk about the seventh commandment, you know, don't commit adultery, which essentially, uh, particularly for married people, um, uh, you know, prescribes all pornography, all sexual temptation, all lust. Well, there you go. So, I mean, you know, welcome to the world of, of sinners, you know, <laughs> and it's, um, and so go down the list of things. We are people who are fundamentally marked by a greater hope and a greater yes than just the no of you can't do this or you shouldn't do that. And so that's why in the midst of all this, particularly for children, I think you all are both right. And I've got young ones myself, um, raising them to know that the loving father, um, uh, you know, that God in heaven has, has created them for a purpose, a reason, and a, a plan that we will thwart and fall and, and fail. Nevertheless, by the blood of Christ, we can be continued to be redeemed and that there's a, there's something more beautiful about your body and about your, your identity, even than just what you do with your genitalia or whatever. I mean, it's like, I don't know, there's all sorts of vulgar ways I could say that, but, um, but um, this is, for a kid's show, right? Um, like Rainbow Randolph and um, Death the Smoochie. But anyway, um, uh, so, you know, that's, and that's what we're just going to keep saying, because we'll be continued to be called, you know, Puritans or homophobes or haters or, uh, you know, whatever, unloving or legalists. And so be it, because that's just not the case, is that we're trying to to um, to find lost sheep and to set them on the road uh, back by still waters. You know, we're trying to to bring them back to, to grass. And and it's only an awareness of how rocky and inhospitable the barren wastelands are, uh, personally speaking, that we would even have compassion for those who are so caught, you know? And so I think, again, that's, this is this is why the urgency, this is why the need and why the, the Lord has, has thankfully given us at least the the um the burden is as they would say the puritans you know my heart has been warmed uh towards hopefully bringing some redemption in this all-important area of sexuality to people i think that redemption as you say is a good note to end on christopher west who we've referred to a few times as from john paul says that it's crucial for Christians to distinguish between indulgence, repression, and redemption. He says that when, when these lusts flare up, we, we think that our only options are either to indulge in the thing or to repress the desire. And he says, as you said, that there is a better way to um, 
take those things to the cross of Christ, surrender our lusts to him and allow him to slay them. And in other words, to repent and believe in the gospel. And that, that is the good news to which we are calling people. Um, that is going to be all the time that we have this week, though. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you want to keep the conversation going, you can be in touch with us in all the usual ways. Rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com. You can join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thanks, as always, to Matt Kennedy and to J.D. Koch. I'm Nick Lannon, and we will be back, Lord willing, next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Thank you.